Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to a Healthy Dose of Dialogue podcast. I'm your host, Donnie Tanucci, Senior Vice President of Growth at Blue Shield of California. My guest today is Jim Klein. Jim is president of the American Benefits Council, a Washington, D.C.-based public policy organization advocating for employer-sponsored benefit programs. In this episode, we'll benefit from Jim's 30-plus years of experience leading the council and hear his insights on the political and legislative landscape and what it means for health policy moving forward. We'll also touch on issues such as social determinants of health, impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic, and what's top of mind for the council's more than 440 member companies. Thanks for joining me, Jim. Thanks so much, Don, for uh, inviting me. Delighted to participate. It is so great to have you on this podcast. And uh, I also want to say that, uh, you know, Blue Shield is so proud to be part of the American Benefits Council. So um, thank you uh, for the work that you do. And, and we're going to get into talking about more about that. Thanks are really all from us toward you, because as, as you indicated in your intro, our members, you know, represent these very, very large companies, but it's valuable to have your expertise and insights participating on our policy board of directors. So. It's a very reciprocal and uh, uh, meaningful relationship. Thanks, Jim. Now, you've been with the American Benefits Council now for 30 plus years, and most of that role's been as president. Uh, and so, I, you know, my, my first question is, um, you know, 30 years um, at, at an organization like that, you've seen some dramatic change, I'm assuming, over those years. So. The question has two parts. The first part is, what are the big macro changes that you've seen as being part of the American Benefits Council over those years? And then maybe, interestingly, what has stayed the same that you're like, wow, that's pretty much the same same deal over, over this past 30 years? Great question. Um, you know, some of the things uh, we're still dealing with, I mean, today I was spending a lot of time uh, on COBRA. <laughs> Yeah, it's been around since 1985, I think, um, and uh, so those things persist. Um, you know, the, the whole idea, really, the, the big picture of trying to improve coverage as well as quality and address the issues of cost. You know, uh, I've now lived through a couple of versions of uh, major health care reform, uh, the effort that President Clinton tried. Uh, obviously what President Obama succeeded in, uh, the efforts to undo that, uh, and, and now sort of moving forward. So uh, as you know better than, than anyone, healthcare is uh, an organic process and there's always new, new things to learn. Uh, but, uh, but those, you know, the, the, the basic framework is the same. Some of the details are the same. Some of the details are different. What, what would you say uh, is most exciting for you today around health care and health benefits? Uh, well, two things, uh, I guess I would say, for, on, a, on, a, on a very personal level, um, it's how much I continue to learn even after all these years. I, I, I did a calculation not so long ago and with almost now 33 years here and the number of board meetings that we have, just board of directors, never mind you know all the other committees and whatever, 
I've spent about half a year of my life just sitting in board meetings. <laughs> but I can say with honesty that I always come away learning something because the people around that table are, you know, just the leaders in the industry and, and are at the cutting edge of trends and knowledge. And, uh, and so that part is very, very exciting. In terms of the, you know, the policy issues, I think just realizing that what we do uh, here in Washington, D.C. has a tangible meaning. Uh, an impact uh, on the lives of millions of people. Uh, you know, we've been working like so many have, you know, nonstop since the pandemic began. Uh, the issue I was talking about, COBRA, there's a provision to provide for uh, fully subsidized COBRA that's in the pandemic relief legislation that Congress is uh, currently considering that will be completed by the time this podcast airs. Um, and that's going to make a difference uh, for many, many people, as well as the effort to try to expand the subsidies so that those individuals can obtain coverage in the individual market as well. So none of this is, uh, is theoretical. It's uh, very practical. I definitely want to get into a little bit more about you know, some of those aspects that you see coming that could be really, really impactful and helpful. So you mentioned the subsidization of COBRA, you know, the Biden administration coming in, I've seen, you know, some of your quotes um, in different publications about, you know, where things may may line up with where the Biden administration is looking to go with health policy and health care. What, um, what other things would you call out that our listeners should be really looking for? Well, of course, there are things in which we are in alignment and things in which we are very concerned about uh, that, that the administration um, is, is likely to be pursuing, uh, including, by the way, the complications about COBRA that I just mentioned, which has been a challenge for employers, as you know. Um, I think there are a number of things here. First of all, uh, we cannot overlook the fact that sometime between now and June, the Supreme Court is going to rule on the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act. And what they decide will have a dramatic impact on the rest of the health policy discussion for some time to come. My own personal prediction is that the Supreme Court will uh, affirm the lower court decision, uh, find that the individual mandate is unconstitutional because it's no longer collecting any tax revenue now that the penalty is zero dollars, uh, and, and refer it back to the lower courts to decide, therefore, if the mandate is unconstitutional, what other parts of the law must also fall with it? and which parts can survive because they are sufficiently severable from the individual mandate. Um, if, if the Supreme Court does that, uh, then that litigation is going to work its way through the judicial process for another couple of years before it ends up at the Supreme Court's door once again. But if they decide that they're going to try to make some of that determination themselves, then we will have much more immediate impact on you know, on the decisions that uh, Congress is going to be making and the Biden administration will be making. Uh, and of course, if they uphold it, uh, the law, then, you know, it's full speed ahead in terms of the administration is concerned to try to build upon the ACA, which is what President Biden pledged to do. But beyond that, you know, the issue of uh, drug prices, PBM transparency, um, uh, an effort perhaps to lower the Medicare eligibility age to 60 to provide potentially opportunities for people even under the age of 60, maybe 50, 55 or 50, uh, to buy into Medicare. Um, so all of these things. Um, now, 
is the administration and the Democratic leadership of Congress going to be able to move forward on all of those things? No, of course not, particularly with these historically narrow margins in both the House and the Senate. Uh, but they're certainly going to put these things forward, and they will be part of the policy debate over the coming months. So with the American Benefits Council, could you share more about you know, the key focus areas that you have? So this is obviously one, monitoring this um, around the, the Affordable Care Act. What other um, aspects, I mean, with 440 member organizations, what else are you focused on at the American Benefits Council? I would cite two other things. Uh, first of all, because our members are all large multi-state employers, uh, retaining the federal framework that is provided under the ERISA law that's been around since 1974 uh, is absolutely essential. And we've, you know, as, as there frankly has been more gridlock in Washington, D.C., uh, the states and in some instances localities have understandably taken it upon themselves to address these issues. With us, you know, that's the healthcare area, but we also work in the retirement area and paid leave and so forth. And this is very active. So making sure, you know, without infringing upon the legitimate concerns that state and local lawmakers have for their constituents, to make sure that for large employers like our members and for the employees of those large employers, that there's a federal, that there's a uniform framework. Employers want to be able to provide consistent, equitable benefits to their employees, regardless of where they, where they live or work. So that's the first issue. The second issue relates to the tax expenditure that's associated with employer-sponsored health care coverage. And, you know, a tax expenditure being any provision of the tax code that the government estimates uh, loses them tax revenue. So the, the deduction that you get for taking a uh, mortgage, paying mortgage interest or making a charitable contribution, these are all tax expenditures. Well, the biggest one by far in the entire federal budget is the tax expenditure that's associated with employer sponsored health coverage. The fact that, you know, we are all fortunate to receive this on a tax favored basis from our employers if we participate in an employer sponsored plan. Government estimates that that will cost the government $3.1 trillion, that's with a T, trillion dollars between the years 2020 and 2029. Now, we have um, real uh, concerns uh, or differences with some of the assumptions that underlie that number. But putting that aside, we decided to say, okay, let's assume the government is right. And that's really what it's costing the federal government. There's, there's no doubt that it's a big number, whatever it is. What are we getting as a nation uh, in exchange for that? And it turns out that for every dollar of tax expenditure that the federal government sort of doesn't collect, employers are spending $4.45 on healthcare coverage for their employees and their family members. This is a huge bargain for the government, for all of us as taxpayers. It would cost so much more to provide that same level of financial security if it had to be done exclusively through a large government program. Why is all this necessary? Well, if benefits people ever wonder why it is that Congress is always meddling in the uh, arena of benefits, it's because that's where that revenue is. And particularly with Congress and the administration, both the prior one and the current one, spending trillions of dollars, understandably and appropriately, to address the pandemic, there is going to be a big search for revenue to pay for other things that Congress and the administration are going to want to do. And 
the, that tax expenditure for employer-provided health coverage is a big, tempting target. So that was a long wind-up <laughs> to get to the, uh, the, the point, but that vulnerability of the tax expenditure is, is sort of the other big thing on our, on our agenda. And so you've got a lot of large employers and that are part of uh, the American Benefits Council. And do you see significant alignment in areas that they're concerned about, focused on, or is it a bit all over the board, uh, depending on the employer and their situation? Uh, that's another terrific question because I would not have believed it, you know, almost 33 years ago when I came to work here that you could have these companies uh, from so many different industries uh, and they would be, you know, in such alignment on almost anything. Now, of course, there are some issues that affect some companies more than others, depending on the demographics of their workforce, more part-time, more full-time, older, younger, etc. cetera. But um, by and large, uh, the same kind of issues uh, are of interest to them on the positive side, you know, uh, getting better value for what they spend, which is a considerable amount of money on healthcare coverage for their workforce um, and aligning cost uh, with quality, um, as, as well as, of course, you know, trying to resist some of the policy proposals that would uh, erode the employer-sponsored system. Got it. Got it. And our members are, you know, across all industries, as you said. So I think that's pretty significant from high tech to manufacturing to services, um, pretty much in alignment. And I, can you share some perspectives? Uh, health equity uh, has been important for some time in healthcare and addressing that. And, you know, there's talk about the, the pandemic, which uh, has really brought to light, I think, some really good things happening in our healthcare system, but also some things that really are just off. And, one of those things is we don't have a, a you know an equitable healthcare system today. So share with me either what the American Benefits Council's work is around that, or what you're hearing from your member companies around health equity. You really hit the nail on the head. Out of this terrible global tragedy, I think a few good things will emerge, at least as it relates to this world of employee benefits that we operate in. One of them, you know is sort of a greater acceptance of telehealth. Another one I think is a, a focus on behavioral health care need because there were challenges pre-pandemic that have only been exacerbated due to all of the stresses of the pandemic. And the third one is that a light has been shined on uh, the fact that uh, communities of color disproportionately uh, have borne the brunt of the pandemic. And so I think that this is sort of elevated this issue for us as an organization. Part of our effort is going to be to ensure that it's elevated it for the public policymakers. Um, to address not only the fact that certain communities, um, you know, have uh, worse health care conditions, but also uh, less access to health care services. So health equity doesn't just sort of mean being able to get to the doctor, although it does include that. You know, it's also nutrition, housing, all the things that affect health. And so this is a very important undertaking um, that, I, that I think is, is something positive that I hope will emerge from the pandemic. Yeah. Are you are you optimistic about the pandemic and sort of maybe waking up the industry a bit or getting it focused or getting people more focused on 
topics like health equity, really looking at social determinants of health, using it to help people, or do you, do you still think, hey, that's a lot of work to do? I think it will, uh, has awakened folks to this. Obviously, it's not like there was nothing going on in this arena pre-pandemic. Uh, this has been an area of concern, but it brought it forward uh, and, and really exposed uh, these, great, uh, these great disparities. So I, I think that it'll be incumbent upon all of us as stakeholders in the healthcare system and, and frankly, just as citizens to see to it that this issue is, you know, openly discussed and addressed. Sometimes those things may be able to be addressed, you know, through changes and sort of practices between health insurers and employer customers and so on. Other times it might involve, um, uh, some public policy changes and other times it'll just involve, you know, make elevating society <laughs> so that more people uh, are, are in the cohorts of, of, of groups that, uh, you know, that have greater access and have uh, better health conditions. Thinking about engagement of employers in particular, are you seeing a ramp up in engagement in health benefits and policy versus maybe what you've seen in the past, or has it remained fairly consistent over the past decade? I mean, how would you characterize it? I would think it's ramped up quite a bit, but I'm curious, and, and I know employers are all over the map on this, but are are they getting, do you believe more engaged? And and it, again, probably one of those both question, you know, both and, and is there a lot more room for them to get even more engaged than should they? Well, I think they have gotten more engaged. I mean, I, I would have to say, and this may be a function of sort of the world in which I've lived in throughout my career, that the people I deal with every day are the people who really care a lot about this and, and are, are, are engaged in it. Um, but uh, it, it has become an ever bigger part of the bottom line for companies. Uh, certainly have seen over the course of three plus decades, more folks from the financial side of big companies getting engaged and interested in this. Uh, it's not just something for the human resources people anymore. Um, and, uh, you know, and the challenges out there are, are enormous. Um, I, I think what intrigues me the most and, and gives me also great cause for optimism is that, you know, large employers uh, in, in partnership with their, their health plan partners like Blue Shield of California uh, really have taken the lead on, you know, demanding good quality outcomes on saying that, you know, this is not acceptable that healthcare somehow is, is the one product or service in our, in our economy that we routinely pay as much, if not more for poor quality as for good quality. We can do better than that. And, and so really employers and their health insurance partners have, led the way in this in this area yeah i agree and you know um not 30 years but i've been in healthcare for about 25 years now most of it on the health plan side and you know what really resonates with me at blue shield of california our north star is is creating a healthcare system that's worthy of our family and friends and sustainably affordable and i love that north star and the 7,000 employees at blue shield really work towards that because while we can all probably point to really good things around the healthcare system for our family and friends, there's a whole lot that 
when you think of your own family and your own friends that just don't hit the mark. And so I think, you know, one of the, the things I get excited about is, you know, with work like organizations like the American Benefits Council, leading employers, leading, we had Tracy Watts on here, who I know is on your board from Mercer uh, as well, speaking about health policy is how do we really move that needle sooner rather than later to create that healthcare system worthy of our family and friends? Because I think a lot of the components exist to make that happen, whether it's policy, technology, um, you know, experience, um, affordability. Uh, but, you know, I, I, th- I also think there's a point where um, there's a tipping point here where if we're not careful, it's just, um, or, or if, we, if we don't move fast enough, I should say, we're, we're not going to be, we're not going to be in the spot we need to be. So on that line of thought, I was going to kind of just, you know, see one, do you agree with that? And two, what do you think, you know, you've been 30 plus years, um, that what, what is the timeline where major change and transformation needs to happen for us to get to that point? Well, I've, I've spoken a good deal about my, my optimism. I, I do have to inject, uh, since this is called a, a healthy dose, <laughs> this podcast, uh, a dose of realism, and that is that, you know, healthcare policy uh, has been about as partisan as any other public policy issue in this country for a great long time, too long. Um, and therefore, it sort of is more incumbent upon all of us as stakeholders who can find common ground to do so, uh, either because changes are gonna have to be made outside of the public policy realm, or because we're gonna have to band together and demonstrate to people on both sides of the aisle that certain policy changes uh, have to be have to be made uh, in the interest of workers and their families and, uh, and, and better quality outcomes. So there's sort of as the, the, the the flip side of the same coin, I guess, the concerns, but also the responsibility that we then have to uh, take matters into our own hands in a way uh, to push where the policymakers are are not leading. Thanks for that, Jim. I want to shift to more of a personal note and ask, what's one thing that you've learned in 2020 that you think will benefit you in 2021 and beyond? Uh, I would say people's resourcefulness. You know, like so many other organizations and people who are listening to this podcast, uh, you know, we went to a completely different kind of modus operandi uh, for purposes of conducting our business. Uh, And it's interesting how relatively seamless it it really was. Um, You you know, the, the three most commonly recited words of 2020 were you're on mute and we're still kind of struggling with that. Um, but uh, I, I think it also, frankly, underscored for me, number one, how fortunate I am to be healthy, number two, to be employed, number three, to be employed in the kind of job that I can do, uh, you know, from the comfort of my home, just as I am right now talking with you, uh, and, and a greater appreciation for all the people out there whose jobs uh, don't permit them to do that, and, and they're making life uh, more comfortable and possible for the rest of us. I, I share that 100% with you, Jim. I feel the same way. <laughs> um, well said. What is, what's one thought or ask that you would have for anyone who's listening to this podcast? Well, you know, I, um, I, I said a moment ago about how partisan things are. 
But I'll tell you something else. Uh, before I sort of worked on, on this side of, of policy as, a, as an advocate, uh, I worked on Capitol Hill as a, as a legislative staff person for a member of Congress. And it is easy, particularly in the current environment, for any of us to sort of get cynical about the political process. But I want the people who are listening to this podcast to know that they really can make a difference because most members of Congress on both sides of the aisle want to do the right thing. Now, maybe they want to do it for the right reasons. Maybe they want to do it for their own political reasons, whatever it is. Um, uh, I think they want in genuinely to, do, to, to, do, to pursue good policy. And there's no way that any member of Congress can possibly know as much as the people who are listening to this podcast about how healthcare plans are designed and operated and what they mean for, um, you know, for the, the people who are served by them. And so I just would encourage everybody to sort of share that information. You know, if you can do it on, on behalf of your company, great. Uh, if you just simply do it in your own personal capacity when you're communicating with our elected officials, that's valuable as well. But we shouldn't let the, the partisanship and, and cynicism that does exist uh, in any way impede us from engaging in the process. Excellent. Now we're going to have some fun with some uh, rapid fire questions here at the end. Uh -oh. Just quick, uh -oh. just quick one word okay. answers. They're, they're, they're easy ones, but I think we'll have some fun with this, Jim. What's one thing that you do to stay healthy? Uh, the treadmill every day. Most used app on your phone? I don't know if it's the most used, but my favorite one is something called Akinator. A-K-I-N-A-T-O-R. And I encourage people to take a look at it. It's a lot of fun. Excellent. I'll check that out. When you're not working, what can we find you doing? Traveling. And I love to see the world. I'm very fortunate that my job enables me pre-pandemic and hopefully post-pandemic, to travel to a lot of places domestically and globally uh, that I otherwise wouldn't have gotten to. But on a personal level, my wife and I enjoy the travel as well. And what is your favorite thing about living in Washington, D.C.? Ah, that's easy. My grandchildren are here. <laughs> that's excellent. That's excellent. Well, thank you so much, Jim. I um, really appreciate uh, your participation on this podcast. This was excellent. Thank you so much uh, for inviting me and for uh, posing such terrific questions. <laughs> and for all the work that you're doing, particularly, by the way, on social determinants of health. Um, I did uh, tune in some months ago to a fantastic presentation that you all did as part of the Silicon Valley Employers Forum. Uh, and I know that you're really at the forefront of, of that and very grateful for that leadership. Thank you for that. Well, to our listeners, thank you for taking the time to listen. I hope you walked away with the insights that Jim brought on public policies impacting healthcare, uh, social determinants of health that he just mentioned, so important. And really to, um, you know, let's let's um, think on both sides of the aisle. Um, we, we really need to come together uh, to be able to address healthcare in a way that's going to transform it into one, again, that's worthy of our family and friends and sustainably affordable. 
And with 30 plus years of uh, work and advocacy there, I just, you know, just want to say thank you, Jim, for your leadership in that of the American Benefits Council. Um, for more information on the American Benefits Council, it's www.americanbenefitscouncil.org. And join us next time as we continue to bring you a healthy dose of insights and perspectives based on conversations with leaders who are transforming healthcare. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter at Dose of Dialogue.